On this week's edition of New York Now, thousands of asylum seekers have arrived in New York City over the past year, and some are making their way upstate. We'll talk about that and more with Murat Awada from the New York Immigration Coalition. And later, having a disability can make it difficult to find and maintain a job, but it doesn't have to be. We'll tell you more. I'm Dan Clark, and this is New York Now. Today, the Senate majority Welcome to this week's edition of New York Now. I'm Dan Clark. After last week's primaries, New York's political world was on vacation this week, so not a lot of news to recap. Though we saw some of the hottest days on record in New York this week. Just a reminder to stay cool and hydrated on those long days. But moving on now with an update in healthcare coming out of COVID. A few weeks ago, an executive order that changed a lot of things in healthcare during the pandemic expired. One of those things is how physician assistants, or PAs, were allowed to work. At the start of the pandemic, there was a lot of concern that healthcare facilities didn't have enough staff, given the spike in patients infected with COVID. And we saw that play out in real time. For a lot of reasons, hospitals around the state were not equipped to handle the pandemic, and that's not really their fault. A lot of hospitals were already understaffed before COVID. But when it became clear that the virus would be sending a lot more people to the hospital, then Governor Andrew Cuomo issued an executive order aimed at that problem. See, before COVID, PAs could only practice with the direct supervision of a physician. But because hospitals were slammed during the pandemic, Cuomo's executive order dropped that rule, allowing PAs to practice autonomously without a physician. That was until late June, when the executive order allowing that expired. So now, PAs have to practice like they used to, which they say doesn't make sense. Petty Cordes is a past president of the New York State Society of PAs. You know, it's kind of like when you allow a glass to shatter, and, and you could have prevented it, but now you have to pick up all the pieces, and you don't even know how many pieces there are. And that's kind of where we are with this. You know, there is uh, a lot of fallout, I think, Time will tell um, how much, frankly, our patients have lost uh, with this. And as we told you a few weeks ago, there is a bill that would restore that independence for PAs, but it didn't pass the legislature before the end of this year's session in June. Corda says they'll be back at the Capitol next year to continue their push for the legislation and staying at the Capitol now with immigration. More than 60,000 asylum seekers have arrived in New York City over the past year. And as we told you, the city and the state have had a tough time managing that influx. Finding where to house those migrants has been difficult, and the state still doesn't have a long-term solution there. At the same time, legislation related to immigrants continues to face hurdles at the state capitol. One bill, called Coverage for All, has gotten quite a bit of attention. It would allow undocumented people to get health insurance through the state's low-cost public option called the Essential Plan. And while support for the bill is growing, it doesn't have the votes to pass, and it's unclear if it ever will. So for more insight on that and the influx of asylum seekers into New York, we spoke with Murat Awada, executive director of the New York Immigration Coalition. Murat, thank you so much for coming back. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Of course, anytime. So I want to start by wrapping up kind of the end of session in terms of immigration issues. I think the big one on the table that a lot of people were watching is something called coverage for all, which would extend a uh, state 
state-sponsored health plan called the Essential Plan to undocumented people, to everyone in the state, really. It didn't pass in the legislature, meaning it's not going to become law this year. They may bring it back up next year. Uh, tell me how you're feeling about that right now as session has ended. You know, first, thank you for having me on the show. Sure. And I think that this has been a really interesting legislative session across the board, not just on immigration issues, but on a, on a whole gamut of issues. Um, and when we're talking about how do we ensure that we're building a more vibrant New York, we need to be really investing in our number one asset, which is our people. Um, everything from housing to tenant protections to health coverage for immigrants to even public safety measures like New York for all, um, as well as language access. Um, we saw it move in some areas, but didn't move in other areas um, within the state. So I think on you know, for instance, New York for all, we we saw it have the most support it's ever had this year, um, which would really double down the investment of public trust, um, specifically between immigrant communities and law enforcement. Um, and that didn't move. Uh, language access, ensuring people are getting information in languages that they understand. Um, we saw it pass in the Senate and not move in the Assembly. Um, we saw coverage for all, right? Um, we saw that the federal government came back and said that, you know, if the state wanted to enfranchise immigrants within the state of New York to get access to our state exchange program, that they should do that and that they have permission, that they will be able to do so. Um, so I think for us seeing uh, the gridlock on moving some of these pieces at a time when we need to be thinking about what does real recovery look like for the state? And how are we ensuring that we're building a state for all um, is priority for us, right? And, and moving that forward, uh, regardless of um, you know whatever potential wave of anti-sentiment comes up, we have to have that political courage that we've seen New York have time and again continue to shine here. You know, on coverage for all, there seems to be a misunderstanding or disagreement over the cost of what the program would be. So as you said, Senator Gustavo Rivera, who is the chair of health in the Senate, had wrote to the federal government asking basically if federal funds could pay for this by through a pass-through method. It's, it's a complicated thing. But the federal government came back and said, yes, federal funds could pay for this. The Hochul administration seems to be under the impression that that's not true, that they would have some sort of startup ramp up cost somewhere in the billions. So is there any clarity there on what that would actually be? Would the state have to pay to start up the program and then the federal government would pay for it? Or is there just some misinformation out there? I think that there's a lot of education that needs to happen in this moment. Um, and first, you know, this, because we have a state exchange program here in the state of New York, we end up getting a surplus. Um, that surplus needs to be reinvested back into the system. So when we're talking about how can this be paid for, monies from that surplus can also pay for um, the implementation and running of the program. And I think that there's a misalignment of sorts on what ramp up costs will be for years coming out, right? And I think there are a number of different solutions that we can uh, discuss and what that looks like. Um, but I think that it came up very towards the end of session. And even in the extension, um, there wasn't enough time to actually do the due diligence. Um, I think for the, the state to actually get its numbers in order, right? And I think for us, we've had consistent numbers of what we think uptick would be, what sign up would be, and what those costs would be. And I think that I think our rate was about $1.2 billion. And that would be 
money from the from the federal government that we're already going to be receiving and just allocating in this way. So I think for us, we're, we'll go back to it next year and continue to fight for it and ensure that, you know, we just came out of one of the worst global pandemics we've ever seen in our in our history of existence. And I think we're, if anything, we came out of that understanding that we are only as healthy as our neighbor is. And we have to ensure that everyone has the ability and access to health coverage as well as health insurance. You know, there is growing support for this in the legislature. I should note that, that it isn't stagnant. It isn't something that's been dead on arrival. It just seemed to be, like you said, that there wasn't enough time to kind of come to a deal, a consensus on it this year. Next year is an election year for the legislature. Does that worry you at all in terms of making progress next year to get this across the finish line that some people may want to vote against it or not give their support for political reasons? You know, in my eyes, every year is an election year. Um, and I think that for us, we want to continue to build the support that we know we have um, and expand further out to ensure that our, our communities are getting the supports and the rights that they deserve, that every New Yorker deserves, um, the right to access the health coverage, the right to um, ensure that they, if they feel sick, that they can go to their doctor. Um, coverage for All is actually a huge uh, money saver. It'll save hundreds of millions of dollars for the state in general if people were able to get health insurance. So I think there's a lot of work that needs to continue. Um, I'm not concerned about it being an election year. I think that we have to continue to fight um, and fight for our communities across the state of New York. So let's switch to talking about the asylum seekers. These are people who have come from a couple different countries up to New York. They were uh, primarily, I think, traveling from other states. Some governors sent them to New York from other states. Now they're here and they want to settle in the U.S. for asylum, obviously based on the name. First, I want to ask you, this has been a situation that's been kind of an ongoing situation over the past year or so. How do you think the state and the city have handled it so far? You know, New York City has welcomed, I think at this rate, over the past year, over 100,000 people um, who are recent arrivals, people who are fleeing their home countries um, because of persecution or violence or government collapse. Um, we're seeing folks coming in uh, often, right? And we're seeing them seeking safety and refuge. That's what it comes down to. We have the Statue of Liberty in our harbor here in New York. Um, and our communities across the state have been revitalized by the immigrant and refugee community. And I think that to the city's credit, they've stepped up in certain respects and have not stepped up in other respects. You know, we saw, um, you know, one of our biggest demands in the beginning when we started getting buses from Texas was asking the mayor um, to issue emergency legal services resources so that we can get people the legal services resources that they needed because we know that there's a backlog in the immigration system. So the longer it takes us to get people the support that they need, the longer it's gonna take for them to get on their feet on their own. So just recently, um, you know, uh, this past week, the mayor's office announced that they're doing like an emergency uh, investment in legal services to move people's applications forward, which is a great first step. We need to ensure that there is more resources for representation for people who are going to need that. This is just step one of a very long tedious process that people have to go through. And at the state level, we saw the state budget actually come through and deliver over a billion dollars in resources um, to support recent arrivals, as well as nearly uh, quadrupling our immigration legal services dollars that are statewide. So the state is stepping up. 
the city is as well, but there there's more hiccups than not hiccups in the city. And I think, you know, giving them credit where it's due, they did expand emergency shelter. They did, um, you know, try to partner with uh, folks to make sure that things were as seamless as possible. But even in that, we need to make sure that we're continuously collaborating, that we're continuously planning and making sure that we have the best interests of the people in front of us at the forefront of this, right? We wanna make sure that people are self-sustaining, that they actually get the support that they need to get on their own feet and move forward in our communities. One of the biggest needs of these people right now and you know, forever is gonna be housing. You know, that They've traveled here and New York City says it doesn't have enough beds for these people right now. So they've been sending them to uh, some counties upstate on a very limited basis, I should say. It, that has not happened uh, across the state. There's been some disagreement over that by certain officials. We saw some polling say uh, that New York voters don't want them housed at SUNY dorms, possibly don't want them housed in other counties as well. What do you see as the ideal situation there in terms of housing? How should we house these people as they await for the asylum process to go? Well, just to share, you know, folks who are uh, adults and, you know, adult couples and singles, who have entered New York City shelter system end up leaving within 30 to 45 days because they're able to get work in the informal economy and find their own um, room or share an apartment or get their own apartment. So that's already moving. I think the challenge here is as, is, as it is with historically unhoused families, um, it takes families a little bit longer and they need a little bit more support to get out of the shelter system. Um, so that's, I think, what we're seeing as being the real tension here in New York City where at this rate, New York City has over 176 hotels, over 10 uh, humanitarian relief centers. And we're, we're seeing uh, folks leave in the 30 to 45 days, but also more people coming in. Um, and I think with the statewide resettlement program, we should be supporting people who want to go and live in other parts of our state. Um, I think that the city has, again, had a hiccup in that regard, right? And not coordinating and planning better um, and really ensuring that we're we're building the trust that we need to uh, with other local governments. So I think for the city in this moment, we really need to be investing actually in getting people out of shelter and into permanent housing. There are tens of thousands of available apartments. People just need a little bit of help to get into them. We need to roll out a more expedited city FEPS housing voucher program. Um, to ensure that people are getting the support that they need to leave the shelter. And we need to start with the people who've been there the longest, right? These are historically unhoused folks in New York. And for families, it actually takes about three to four years to get out of the shelter system in New York City. Um, on a statewide level, we need to make sure that we're also ensuring that we have, you know, housing vouchers as well. We didn't see the housing assistance voucher program move in the state legislature either this past session. And we're hoping that that gets done um, in, the, in the coming year because we're seeing folks needing support to remain in their homes. You know, is there anything else just because the asylum process is not a short one. So a lot of these asylum seekers are going to be waiting a long time to have a decision on, on their application. Is there anything else you think the state or the city should be doing as this long period goes on to support these people? I think that, you know, we have to this is not a new population to the city or the state. Um, immigrants have been coming to New York for centuries. We welcome people from Europe, from the Middle East, from Africa from Asia and beyond. And we continue to do that even to this day. Um, I think for us, we wanna make sure that we're having key investments made in people's ability for upward economic mobility 
for all New Yorkers, regardless if they've been here for 50 years or 50 days, we want to make sure that if you are a New Yorker, that you have all the supports that you need. Um, and one thing that with the immigrant community here in the state of New York is that they have been incredibly resilient. Um, this is probably one of the, the, the biggest moments where, uh, you know, we have seen this sort of reliance on government uh, support, but this is not the usual. Um, we've seen our communities actually stand up and continue to be the economic backbones of local economies across the state, and that will continue to happen. This is a good thing. This is an opportunity for the city and the state to actually get its workforce needs met and also do the right thing um, and ensuring that we're able to move uh, our state forward. All right, Murado Auda from the New York Immigration Coalition, thank you so much. Thank you. And another big obstacle for asylum seekers is employment. The state wants the Biden administration to fast track work authorization for those migrants so they don't have to rely solely on the government for basic needs like housing and food. So far, nothing from the White House on that. But staying now with New York's workforce, it's no secret that if you have a disability, work can be hard to find or next to impossible. And we see that reflected in data. Just last year, the unemployment rate for New Yorkers with a disability was 11.9%. That's according to the state controller's office. And that's more than seven points higher than the unemployment rate for New Yorkers without disabilities. And according to data from the U.S. Census Bureau, only about a third of the one million New Yorkers who have a disability are employed. That's where disability service providers come in, like NYSID, which stands for New York State Industries for the Disabled. They're a nonprofit member organization that connects New Yorkers with disabilities with jobs. WMHT's Catherine Rafferty has this report. So NYSID was put into place shortly after the closure of Willowbrook. Um, there's been a lot of discussion on the recent anniversary of the closure of Willowbrook. Uh, if an individual with an intellectual or developmental disability was born uh, before 1978 in New York State, there was a, a higher uh, than usual likelihood that they would have been institutionalized. Post-1978, um, New York State changed uh, that type of care for individuals with disabilities and have um, prioritized that individuals be able to be part of the community, which they should. Um, and so many individuals with disabilities live in their own homes, uh, live in the community, live in group homes, and our program came out of that change so that they would also be eligible for work. Uh, and be able to find meaningful employment that they enjoyed um, and uh, that helps sustain them economically. Alex Demetrosik is the customer care manager at the Center for Disability Services, a non-for-profit organizer that's one of upstate New York's largest providers of programs and services for individuals who have disabilities. We have very low turnover, which is like always a goal of ours, is that once we hire an individual with disabilities, we like to make a career for them. We have the majority of our individuals with disabilities have been working here for 10, 15, 20 years. We have some individuals have, who have just passed their 40-year mark working for us, which is something we're very proud of. That's true for Bob Timberland. Timberland has been an employee at the Center for Disability Services Male Fulfillment Center for 33 years. The Center for Disability Services has a male fulfillment operation where about 70% of the people who work there are individuals with disabilities. The facility processes around 200,000 mail pieces a day, 
A lot of paper needs to be opened each day to fulfill their printing needs. But this task presents a challenge for some employees. Part of our mission is to employ individuals with disabilities. And when you have individuals that have dexterity issues or just other sorts of limitations, when they're opening paper, they often get paper cuts or just rip the paper or have just any sort of thing that can happen while they're opening that paper that prevents it from running through high-speed production printers without jamming them or just at a level that can keep up with our needs. With the help of a new invention, an automated paper ream opener, Bob has been opening 150 reams of paper a day. The new machine that cuts the paper, it saves less time, less hassle, it makes it easier for me. He's definitely cut down on the amount of paper cuts he's get. He also has a lot more fun when you're just opening reams of paper manually. It gets a little tedious and a little annoying, but now he gets to basically push a button and it, the machine does it. Innovation can make work accessible to people living with disabilities. And to spur those innovations, NYSET formed CREATE, which stands for Cultivating Resources for Employment with Assistive Technology. CREATE is an academic challenge created by NYSED to encourage assistive technology innovation in order to remove barriers from the workplace for people with disabilities. College engineering students have the opportunity to collaborate with NYSED member rehabilitation organizations during their capstone projects to work on a solution to a business problem. Maureen O'Brien, president of NYSED, says these innovations help those with disabilities succeed in their jobs. This past year, our symposium had a number of different projects. The winning project was with the State University at Albany. The paper ream opener created efficiencies uh, that weren't there before. In addition, what I think is really important about CREATE is that it, it brings engineering students into our space, into the disability space, um, where there is room for all kinds of efficiencies. Greg Sorrentino, President of the Center for Disability Services says the invention has helped with creating more work opportunities for people with disabilities. We don't look at someone as dis disabled or not disabled. We look at them as employees. They're all equal, and they work that way. And the more of these barriers we can get out of the way, the more of that that occurs. And our turnover here is almost none on both sides. So people who have a disability and people who don't. They like working here, and they like working here, I think, because you have you know, two groups of individuals that work as one. And the way that works well is to get, get more individuals working here, more individuals that we can put together and, and, and work together and develop friendships and develop working relationships. And all that starts with this, this program, which you know, breaks down those barriers and allows them to participate. Maureen O'Brien with NYSED emphasizes that employment is a key ingredient for independence. Independence is really important uh, for everybody, um, and um, there's no reason why an individual with a disability should not have independence as well. Um, and that is why being fully engaged in the workforce is very important. Uh, at NYSED, there are many individuals with disabilities who come through our contracts who are first-time taxpayers. 
um, and uh, they're supported on the job with job coaches through the organizations that we work with. And in doing so, it allows them to move into other occupations and flourish. O'Brien says disability also needs to be included in the workplace diversity, equity and inclusion, or DEI, initiatives. I want to make sure that we are uh, putting individuals with disabilities as part of that formula. Um, and what I say to my staff a lot and in training that we've done for diversity, equity, and inclusion is that DEI means that everybody feels included and in part of the workplace and is comfortable coming into their position. In February 2022, the Office of the Chief Disability Officer was established to coordinate state agency operations to fully implement the Americans with Disabilities Act and ensure that New Yorkers with disabilities are given the accommodations necessary to have equal opportunities for employment. In the 2023 executive budget proposal, Governor Kathy Hochul proposed increasing the number of state workforce positions designated under Civil Service Law 55B for people with disabilities from 1,200 to 1,700 and giving these employees an opportunity to transfer into a competitive class position. But O'Brien says there's still more to do when it comes to supporting people with disabilities in the workforce. Direct care workers are an important part of the equation says O'Brien. So the direct care workforce is extremely important. In some cases, they are job coaches. Um, and in New York State, um, we have been fighting for the direct care workforce to be paid more than minimum wage. We have to do a better job at prioritizing individuals with disabilities and including them in the equation, the DEI equation. I, I think we're learning. Um, we shouldn't still be in that phase. We should be beyond that. Um, the Civil Rights Act was was a long time ago now, um, and um, it's time that uh, the discussion that we have here just be part of every day. If you have a disability or know someone who does, we'll link to some employment resources on our website. That's also where you can sign up for our newsletter. With our free newsletter, you'll get a few stories from the week and early access to each week's show. And while you're on there, give us a follow on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. All that and more is at nynow.org. But that's all the time we have for this week. Thanks for watching this week's New York Now. Have a great week and be well. Funding for New York Now is provided by WNET.